I was talking to Krista right before this and I was like, do you think Dr. Tara knew like years and years and years ago that something like this talk about manifestation would come about knowing the science for as long as you have and doing all the research? I'm like, was there ever this connection that you made to it? Because it just, it feels so perfect for us to Mm -hmm. hear the science and then the spiritual aspect. But were you feeling this years and years ago? I I felt it strongly around the time that I got divorced. So over 10 years ago, when I turned to more spiritual readings, really, to try to find my way out of it in the best possible way. And that's the first time I formally remember discovering manifestation and, you know, practice it well. I'd read about it before, Mm. but not practiced it, which I think is quite a common story as well. You know, it sounds great, but either you feel like you don't need it or it, you know, it sort of feels like a big commitment. Now that I'm really into it, I look back and I almost feel like children, they know about it, but it kind of gets squelched out of us. Like people say, oh, don't say such silly things or don't, you know, come up with these silly ideas. And so I think that I used to see and feel things when I was a really young child that were not explainable. And then because my education was very scientific, but it probably became less and less and less until I needed something more than just science to Mm -hmm. to sort of sort my own life out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this it's it's one of my favorite things how in today's day and age that we are seeing how spirituality can live with science. And that's really mysticism, you know, from my perspective, like science and spirit is really this age's mysticism. When you talk about that, you know, people discover manifestation and it's it's too hard for them, or they just kind of see it as something that they can't do. What's happening neurologically for people where they feel like that seems nice, but you know, it's not something I could do long-term or it's not something that I could really uh, make work for me. In my experience, and I'd actually love to hear from you as well on this, because this is more in my experience, but being a scientist, Mm -hmm. it's probably based on that, that a strong negative motivator gets us into action. Mm -hmm. Sometimes a a really strong positive one will do that too, but not as strongly as a negative motivator. So I'm thinking, for example, when I had my wedding come up and I wanted to look a certain way and for the whole wedding to feel a certain way, I did a lot of things I wouldn't normally do to try to make sure that happened, but that was unusual. And I remember thinking then, okay, this is a really positive motivator, but most of the time we do things to avoid a perceived loss or we do things because things have gone wrong for us and we need to try to make it better. And actually that is very explained by science because one of the strongest gearings of our brain from evolution is called loss avoidance. And the brain is two to two and a half times as primed to avoid loss as it is to get a reward. Wow. And because I guess from an evolutionary standpoint, why is that? Is there like an example from like early primitive days that that explains that? Yeah. So imagine that we were all cave women together. And I said, Lindsay, I'm hungry. Could you go and, you know, gather some berries for us? And you said, Well, no, there's a there's a wolf roaming around around outside. So I'm like, okay. And then eventually I'm like, Lindsay, I'm really, really hungry. Like, please could you go? It would take us to be starving, to take the risk of going outside if we know there's a predator. If you knew that there was a predator and the risk of going out to get food that's not essential wasn't really worth it, you'd say no to me. So it's literally, yes, you know, I want a reward. 
but what's the risk to our lives to, to go and get that? So it was more about avoiding death from hypothermia, you know, death from a predator. Whereas with starvation, you can actually last quite a long time. So even if you're in an uncomfortable position, if you know that there's a, a, a quick death out there, you won't go for it. Mm. Got it. Yeah, it's interesting too, you know, as we evolve and as there becomes less wolves out there, as there becomes less predators that are going to attack us, how within society, there's sort of new threats that constantly keep us in that state of fight or flight, whether it's perceived threats or real threats. Mm -hmm. Do you find that from an evolutionary perspective that that is like, what would it take for us to be out of that constant state of fear? You know, would we have to completely disengage from the real world? Would we have to stop watching the news? Like, is it possible to live in a state where we don't feel like there's a constant threat looming at all times? So you're absolutely right. And I love that you both um, have jumped onto the evolution sort of uh, story because it explains so much that really resonates with people because we can all think, oh yeah, that definitely would have happened to our ancestors. So the threats have changed from physical to psychological or social. Although that threat also existed because we could only really thrive as part of a tribe in the cave. And that was literally for physical warmth as well as affection and, you know, looking after each other's children and sharing responsibilities. Now, there aren't as many, any in that way anyway, physical threats to our, sa our safety or our life. But the social threat of being rejected, being lonely, being abandoned, um, that's still very, very strong in our wiring. Um, and then other things, because obviously now we have money, for example, that the idea of losing your job, losing your lifestyle, those have become, you know, sort of potential social threats to your safety as well. And, you know, there's so many more. But I would say that financial and relational have become the biggest threats to our safety. So I think obvious examples of that are staying in a relationship where you're not really happy, but you think, well, it's better than being single again kind of thing. And because that wiring has been there for so long. And of course, in Lacey's work, she talks about wiring that has been there since childhood for us as individuals. And we have you know, made it very clear that the longer an issue has been there, the harder it is to bring it from subconscious to conscious and then deal with it. This is even beyond that. This is for generations and millennia. So it's a very strong default. And it, it's really every decision that you make is based on, is the world a safe place? Can I do this and still be healthy and happy? And you mentioned a specific, which is not watching the news. Well, I don't know any neuroscientist that I'm friends with who watches the news. And, and that's the reason, because, because we're wired to default to loss aversion. If we continually tell our brain that there's danger out there, there's bad people out there, there's accidents out there, you will not want to you take the healthy risks that you could to make your life better because you're too aware of the possible dangers. Thank you so much for tuning in to Morning Microdose by Almost 30. We hope you enjoyed waking up. As always, we encourage you to take what resonates and leave the rest. If you enjoyed this trip, tune into the full episode on the Almost 30 podcast. All episode information can be found in the show notes. Make sure to subscribe. And if this becomes a part of your morning routine, be sure to share it with a friend. We have new inspiring doses Monday through Friday. Follow us on Instagram at Morning Microdose and follow Almost 30 at Almost 30 Podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in the vortex.